right, y'all. Welcome. We are so glad that you're here tonight. Uh, for those of you who I don't know yet, my name is Ryan, and I'm the college pastor here. This thing is all broken. Um, I'm the college pastor here at Northway, and um, I'm just really excited to kick off the semester with you guys. Excited for y'all to be here. Um, we have uh, been praying for you guys. We've been praying for the semester, and we've been praying uh, that God would work in your lives um, just tonight, and then also as we kind of go through uh, this, this semester. So really excited to be here. Um, each and every one of us, probably most of us at least, have had an experience where you've been somewhere and you're like, yeah, I don't belong here. Like you walk up somewhere and you just have this overwhelming sense of, I am not supposed to be here. Maybe it's you walked up and you're like, you thought it was more of like a casual sweats event and it's like black tie, and you're like, oh my gosh, I am not supposed to be here. Or you're hanging out with a group of people, and, and you're just like, yep, these are not my people. I'm not supposed to be here. We've all had moments like this. I remember being um, in middle school and playing football, and we were playing this team, and this team was massive. I mean, I was a shrimp in middle school, so everyone was massive to me, but this team was like really massive. And I know it might be distorted, my memory from this time, because everything seems bigger than what it was, but I really think they had plenty of guys on their team who were, like, over six feet tall in middle school. Like, they had five o'clock shadow when they rolled up to the game. And I'm like, I don't know about this. Um, they were way bigger than us, way faster than us, way stronger than us. I kid you not, this is not a lie. I'm, I'm pretty sure I was a captain in that game, but what I remember specifically is walking up to this game, these uh, players shaking their hands, and I'm looking up at them, and they have red eyes. They had put red contact lenses in for the game, and it was the most terrifying thing. And we, needless, we didn't need to say this, but we didn't belong on the same field as them. They just probably should have been playing high school football or probably college football. The, the joke was that we saw several of them get in their cars and drive off afterwards, even though they're in seventh grade. But we had a very strong sense that we were not supposed to be there. Now, here's why I tell you this. This semester, we are starting a series titled Exiles. And we're going to be looking in our home teams and at our worship nights through the book of 1 Peter. And we're going to be looking at what it means to live in a place where you don't belong. What it means to live in a place that's not your home. And so that's where we're going tonight. That's where we're going for this semester. Um, in the very beginning of 1 Peter, in chapter 1, we see Peter give a little bit of context to his letter. He introduces himself, and he says that he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we see is Peter is, he was one of the disciples. He, he walked with Jesus. He literally walked with Jesus on water. And he was the disciple that uh, made the astounding proclamation saying, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the one who has come to save the world. And Jesus said, Peter, on this proclamation, I will build my church. And so Peter was a leader among the disciples. He became a leader among the church. And about 30 years after Jesus had ascended into heaven, he writes this letter from Rome. And he says he writes it to the elect exiles. The elect exiles. Elect meaning God's chosen people, God's set-apart people. Um, and exiles, meaning sojourners, foreigners, aliens. Now, 
we might hear that and think that he's talking about their physical location, that maybe that they didn't belong in that land because they were from somewhere else and been taken off into captivity or something. But he wasn't necessarily speaking about their physical, uh, their physical space, that most of these people had probably grown up where he was writing them to. And so the question is, what does he mean when he's saying exiles? Why does he call them elect exiles? Well, think about it like this. Think about what an exile is. Exiles are foreigners, they're sojourners, aliens is what some translations would say. They are living in a place that's not their home. They're there temporarily, they have allegiances elsewhere, they serve a different kingdom. And when we think about someone who's foreign, foreign to a native land, they look different, they speak different, they dress differently, they have different cultural customs. They look different than the natives of that land. And so keeping that in mind, what he's speaking to is that they are Christians. And as Christians, they are exiles. They are sojourners. See, Christians are living in a place that's not their home. They, they dwell here on earth. They, they live here on earth. But this place, this life is not the end for them. This is not their home. They serve a different master. They serve a different kingdom. Their allegiances lie elsewhere. And Christians will think, speak, and act differently than the world around them. They very much so are exiles in this world. And, and these particular Christians, they were under growing per, uh, persecution. It was getting really bad for them. Um, the, the ruler at the time was Nero, and either right before this letter or right after this letter, the persecution got worse and worse and worse. Nero blamed them for some fires that happened. And he was taking Christians and he was putting them on stakes and lighting them on fire to light up his parties. That's the kind of persecution that these, this early church was dealing with. And so Peter writes to them, these elect exiles, the letter of 1 Peter. And I really think that this is going to be uh, really good for us to study throughout this semester. I think it's going to be good for a few different reasons. One is anytime you open up the word of God, it's a good thing. The Word of God is living and it is active. It's good for teaching. It's good for reproach. It's good, good for us to read because the Holy Spirit can move and mold and shape our hearts. So just the sheer fact that we are reading God's Word is good for us. But secondly, just like we talked about, as Christians, we are exiles. We are sojourners. We are aliens in this land. And so it's good for us to study to see how do we as Christians live in a land that's not our home. And even more specifically than that, in that same vein, uh, it, talking about persecution. Now, our persecution is nowhere near what their persecution was. Lord willing, hopefully, in our lifetime, none of us will probably be set on fire to light up a party for our faith. Probably not. However, the way our culture is moving it is getting more and more difficult to ascribe to uh, the Christian culture, to claim Christianity, to hold to these Christian values, it is getting more difficult to where it might cost you grades, relationships, social status, it might cost you job opportunities. These things could potentially in our lifetimes continue to get more and more difficult. And so it's important for us to see what does it look like to live as exiles, but even more specifically, exiles in a hostile environment. And so I think it's important for those reasons. And then Finally, I think it's really specific for you guys as well, that you guys are in such a special season. 
that the college years, these, this age, is unlike any other. And for you guys, you very much are in a temporary season of life. It's one that's formative. It's one that's, that's going to be really awesome and is going to be impressionable for you. But it's temporary. Uh, most of you or a lot of you will eventually graduate. It might take some of you longer than others, but that's okay. You will graduate and you'll go to a different city or a different state. You will move away. And so this place is very literally not your home for very long. For others of you, you might stick around, and we hope you do. We really, really hope you do. We like you guys. Um, but you might stick around, but even if you stick around, you will transition out of this season into another season. So you're very much living in a place that's not your home. You are living as exiles, as sojourners, as aliens. And so I really, really believe that this semester is going to be really fruitful for us if we will lean into what First Peter says and, and what it looks like to live as an exile, to live in a place that's not your home. So Peter, he be- begins his, his, the body of his letter, the verses that Casey just read for us, he begins with a proclamation of praise. He begins saying, blessing to God the Father, praise be to God. And this This praise is a response of what's going on in his heart. It's a response of something, and he tells us in these next verses what it's a response to. It says, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, according to his great mercy. Mercy here is the driving force for him. Mercy Uh, is defined as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone who is within one's power to punish or harm. Another way to think about it is it's relenting from just judgment. Now, working with Eric, the, the guy who led worship for us, for the past three years has really been a test of my virtue of mercy. Eric's great, phenomenal worship leader. He loves Jesus but he loves to drive me crazy. And what Eric really, really enjoys doing is coming into my office and just moving everything around. And it's not like he does it subtly. He wants credit for what he's doing. He doesn't hide it. He just walks in and talks to me. And as he's having a conversation, I'm like, oh, what are we doing for proximity? He's like moving things around and erasing my whiteboard. He, he gets a genuine joy out of messing with me. And it drives me insane. And, and you know, it's really built this virtue of mercy there's been, may or may not have been one occasion where that involved a Nerf gun and a Nerf bullet that may or may not have had a needle in the end of it. And said Nerf bullet may or may not have ended up in his arm. And there may or may not have been blood involved into it. But for the most part, with the exception of one particular situation, I've done a pretty good job of showing him mercy. I have relented from very, very just judgment for what he deserves. I have been merciful to him. See, it says that these actions that were listed in this verse, they were according to God's mercy. According to God relenting from just judgment. And that makes us question, okay, what what is he relenting from? Why is there judgment that is necessary? And if you study Scripture, you see the the overarching narrative of Scripture, you see it, it's very evident. I think Ephesians 2 sums it up really well for us. It says that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. 
Sins being an active rebellion against our holy and almighty God and against his created order. And, and death meaning that we are lifeless without possibility of remedy. We are dead in our sins. You see, God, when he created all things and he created us, he gave us the, these structure, these parameters to live within so that, that they're based off his nature and his character. And, and he gave them to us so that we could thrive, so that creation could thrive. But mankind as a whole, every single one of us said, no, we don't want your rule. We want our own. And we rejected our creator. And in rejecting our creator, we rejected the very author of life. We pushed him away, and the result was death. Now, obviously, there's physical death for creation, but even more detrimental than that, there's spiritual death. We separated ourselves from our God who created and loved us. And, and we try to fix it in different ways. Mankind as a whole, we try to check the right boxes to do the right things. We, we try to, to do things to please him or whatever idea of him is. And sometimes some of us, we'll just say, yeah, I'm just going to try to forget it and try to numb it with pleasure and forget that it even exists or just deny that it's even a, a thing. But the reality is we cannot undo our condition in and of ourselves. We are broken. We are dead in our sins. We are by nature children of wrath is what Ephesians 2 tells us. That is our condition before God. However, Ephesians 2 also says, but God is so rich in mercy. Just like it tells us he is so merciful. He relents from this just judgment that was to be poured out on us. And it, his mercy drives him to do what we read here, where it says it drives him to make us born again. To make us born again. That's language that's used in John 3 when Nicodemus, a religious leader, comes to Jesus. And he's trying to see who this Jesus guy is and what he's about. And he's got this realization that Jesus is sent from God. That Jesus is someone special. And so he's trying to investigate him to see about this Jesus guy. And Jesus tells him straight up uh, in John 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. Now, Nicodemus, he's very practical minded. He's like, but Jesus, you know, I'm a grown man and... I don't really know how it's possible for me to go back to my mom. She probably wouldn't be cool with that anyways. Like, I, you can't be, I can't go back. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm speaking spiritually. You are spiritually dead, but you need to be born again to be back in relationship with your father. Jesus later on in John chapter 14 is going to say that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, that no one can come to the father except through Jesus, and what he also says in John chapter 11 is that he is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He says, Nicodemus, you are spiritually dead. You need to be born again into new life, and the only way to do that is to come through me. And so, though all of mankind, we are all dead in our sins and trespasses, though we are destined for an eternity of just judgment, God so rich in mercy, propelled by his great love for us, sent Jesus. Jesus being fully God and fully man, he lived the perfect life that we could not live. He was fully righteous in every way. And then he went to the cross 
to pay a sacrificial death, to take on the wrath of God that he did not deserve. And there on the cross, he died. But praise God that what he proclaimed was true, that he indeed is the resurrection and the life. And on the third day, God raised him to life in victory, conquering sin, conquering death. And he arises with a promise that if we will humble ourselves before him, submitting to his rule, trusting him as a sacrifice for our sins, his blood covers us. That our sins that, that deem us worthy of the wrath of God are placed on the cross of Christ. And they are covered in the wrath of God on the cross of Christ. And Jesus' righteousness is then placed on us. So that when God looks down on us, he doesn't see a child of wrath. He sees his son, his daughter. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. They are given new life. They are born again spiritually back into the right relationship with God the Father. And Peter tells us in these verses that with this new resurrection, with this new life, we are born again to living hope and an inheritance. We're born to living hope and an inheritance. Now, hope is a word we don't define often. It's one we use a lot, but we don't usually sit down and actually say, what does this mean? Hope is both desire and expectation. It's longing and confidence. You have to have both. You can't just have one without the other. It's, it's desire and expectation. It's longing and it's confidence. It's both put together. And so here Peter says that we are born again to a living hope. A hope that is alive, that just as we are alive in Christ, our hope is alive, it's breathing, it's active, it's ever-flowing, it's a refreshing spring for us, it's new daily for us. We have this great longing and desire and we have confidence and expectation that we will receive it. And this hope is tied to our inheritance. It's tied to our inheritance. Think about what an inheritance is. An inheritance is something that you receive after someone passes away. They leave you an inheritance. And so the question is, okay, what is the inheritance of the Christian? What is Peter speaking about here? When I one day pass away, I will, all my uh, belongings, all the things I own, I will pass on to someone else. And so in a sense, what we could say is my kingdom, really my tiny little kingdom that I'll probably have, my kingdom will be passed on to someone else. It will pass on to my heir. My heir will inherit the kingdom I leave for them. And so what Peter is saying here is that as a Christian, as a child of God, a son or daughter of the king, your inheritance is the kingdom of God. That your inheritance, the thing that you receive as being his child, is his kingdom. And his kingdom is directly tied to himself. Our God, our perfect heavenly father that loves us, that died for us, that is perfect in every way, is tied to his kingdom. And we as Christians receive both the father and his kingdom. The kingdom of God is one of perfection and righteousness and, and it's one of justice and holiness and complete goodness and perfect peace. It's one with immeasurable joy and pleasure. It's one that exists outside of the brokenness of the fallen world, the brokenness of sin. 
And so it, it's hard to kind of think through, and obviously we can't, we, we don't have enough time on this earth to describe the kingdom of God. We won't ever fully understand it. But something that's a little bit helpful is I want you guys to think through the good things you experience on this earth. The things that you enjoy, the things that are fun, the things that you, you have these positive experiences around. Maybe it's the beauty of creation. You, you go and you look and you see a sunset, you see uh, calm waters, you, you look at the ocean, you, you just admire the beauty of creation. Maybe it's just joy within friendships that you might have, or love in a relationship, or just pleasure in general. Think of all the good and positive things that you experience in this life. These are all glimpses of the kingdom of God. Their taste of that kingdom. You see, we can't fully experience it in this life because of the fallenness of our world. Because, yes, we see the beauty in creation, but we also see natural disasters. Yes, we experience joy and love and relationships, but we also experience abandonment and betrayal. Yes, we experience pleasure and happiness, but we also experience brokenness and sadness and pain. But the inheritance that Peter's speaking of here, the kingdom of God, is one that is completely untainted by the brokenness of sin. It's not marred by the brokenness of sin. It's, it's unhindered, unfiltered joy, peace, satisfaction, and security. And that is the hope of the follower of Jesus. That is the inheritance of the Christian. He goes on to describe this inheritance. He says it's imperishable. That it will continue to endure. It's not subject to decay. See, the things of this earth, they, they pass away. They're perishable. They don't endure. They don't last. Everything in this life has a ticking clock on it. It will not survive. He says your kingdom, the kingdom of God, will endure. It will last. It will continue on. It is eternal. He says it's undefiled. That it's, again, not tainted by the things of this world, by sin. In the Old Testament law, things were deemed clean and unclean, holy and unholy. And, and it had to be purified if it was deemed unclean, if it had been defiled. And the truth is, everything in this earth is, is marred and distorted by sin in some way. Even the good things that we love can be distorted by sin and tainted by sin. And, and what he says is your kingdom, your, uh, your inheritance that you will receive is undefiled. It's pure. Nothing can touch it. The, the impurity of sin will not corrupt it. He says it's unfading. That it will never wither or grow dim. It won't lose its beauty. See, the things of this earth, again, they, they fade away. They lose their luster. They lose their splendor. And you get this. What do you do when you find a song that you really, really like? You put it on repeat and you listen to it. And you listen to it, and you listen to it over and over and over again. And then what eventually happens for most people, there might be some people who are like, eh, no, it never grows old. It grows old, right? The, you lose the splendor that it once had. The song that you loved just a month ago, when it comes on, you roll your eyes and change the station. You're like, why are they playing this song so much? Something that was once great has lost its splendor. It has faded away. But the kingdom of God is not so. It it is continually good. It's continually glorious. He says it's, it's kept for you. Look at the personal possession there. It's kept for you. 
And, and that word kept is in the perfect passive participle, which essentially means that it's past, it's, it's kept, it was kept and stored up, but it's continually kept and will continually stay kept for you. See, the resources in this world, they're, they're scarce. When we use them, they eventually run out, they run dry. He says this inheritance, it will never run out, it's continually kept, it is overflowing for you in abundance, it will never run dry. And he says it's guarded through faith. That word guarded here is, is usually used in a military context. And so he says your, the, your inheritance, the kingdom of God, is guarded, protected for you. See, the, the things in this life, the things that we love, the things that are good, that we care about, we oftentimes lose them. We, they get destroyed in some way. Sometimes it's by some outside force where maybe someone comes and physically steals it or destroys it. Or maybe it's, it's weather or nature and it, it destroys uh, your property. Or, or maybe it, it's you losing someone to some sickness or some disease. And then other times it's not even external forces, it's, it's you. It's you made a poor choice financially, so now you're broke. You had some moral failure, you made some decision that made you lose a relationship. See, things of this earth, that they can be lost, they can be destroyed in some way, but what he says is your inheritance is kept for you and it's guarded for you. There is absolutely nothing external that can come and can corrupt it, can destroy it, or take it away from you. You cannot lose this inheritance because it was bought with the blood of Christ and it's guarded for you. And it's not just outside things it's protected from, it's protected from you as well. Hear me say this, this is really good news for the Christian. You cannot sin away your inheritance. Your inheritance was bought and purchased with the blood of Christ. Your sins were forgiven. Your sin cannot destroy or make you lose your inheritance. And that is good news for us. The kingdom of God is guarded by faith for us. And so, so here's the point. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, in your experience, here are the things of this earth, that what you know, are they're things that are subject to decay. They are tainted and defiled by sin, they, are, they lose their vibrancy, their splendor, they run empty, they can be taken and destroyed, but the inheritance of the Christian is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept and guarded in heaven for you. So why is he giving them this encouragement? Is it just the point and say, yeah, um, your life kind of sucks right now, sucks for you, um, one day it's going to be good, but I got nothing for you now. No. He's telling them to look towards their inheritance, look towards their future, towards their what is to come, to encourage them in the now. They are going through this intense persecution. There's probably these doubts are coming up on, is it even worth persevering for? Or maybe not even is is it worth it, but am I going to be able to persevere when all these things happen? Am I going to be able to push through? Am I going to lose my inheritance? And he's saying, no, 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 no. Your inheritance is sure. It is secure. It is guarded for you. You cannot lose this. The kingdom of God has been bought by the blood of Christ for you. It is awaiting for you. So be encouraged. Hold strong. Draw strength from that. So so what does this mean for us today? What does this mean for us? So often we can suffer from spiritual amnesia. We have the tendency to be quick to forget the rich inheritance 
that is being guarded and kept for us. And we forget the living hope that comes from that secure inheritance. So, so many of us live as those without hope. So um, my dad, he is a diehard Georgia fan, like diehard Georgia fan. Our basement is converted into an apartment, but it is like wall to wall, top to bottom, nothing but pictures, and all of them are autographed, and he is just through and through Georgia fan. And so when the games come on, it gets a little intense at my house. Dad has the tendency um, to yell at the TV. I don't know if any of you are like this, but he yells at the TV, yells at the players, he cheers them on, he claps for them, gets all excited, tells them what they did wrong, what they should have done differently. He's a really good couch coach. When the game's going really well, he's excited, but when it's not going well, he gets angry or maybe even stressed or anxious if it's close. I mean, it is an intense ordeal. So much so that my mom will kind of poke fun at him and be like, oh, do you think they heard you? Do you think they, they're going to respond? She's now gotten to the point where she just goes to her bedroom or to their bedroom and watches something else because she's like, I'm not going to be around this. Um, but even Riggins, my sister's dog, he's a black lab, and he and my dad are like best buds. Loves my dad. They, they're always around each other. But when there's football that comes on the TV, and, and it doesn't even have to be Georgia football. It doesn't even have to be a game that my dad's actually actively watching. It's something that's just on. He sees football, and Riggins starts whimpering and whining because he knows what's coming. Dad eventually gets frustrated and puts him in the back room too and locks him up back there. But it gets really intense. And so I was over at their house the other day, um, just last week, and Dad was flipping through the channels and a replay of the Georgia-Clemson game was on. And so he leaves it on there. Yeah, some claps there, some Georgia fans, I guess. Um, he leaves it on that channel and he's just watching it. And Mom's like, why are you watching this? You watched this last week. And he said, I enjoy watching it now. He said, I know how it's going to end. I know they won. I don't have to stress out. And that's exactly right, right? It would be weird if dad turns on that game after already watching the game and seeing that Georgia won. It'd be weird if he turned it on and he starts yelling at the TV. And he starts getting really stressed and anxious as the game is closer and closer and time ticks off, ticks down. And he starts yelling at the referees. It would be strange for him to watch the game with anxiety. Why? Because he knows how the game's going to end. He knows that Georgia has won the game. He knows the victory is secure. So why would he be stressed when the bad things happen and when things seem tense? Christian, how often do we forget that we know how this whole thing ends? How often do we forget that victory was secured on Calvary? That when Jesus arose from that grave, he secured victory over sin and over death. How often do we forget the hope that we have through him, the living and active hope that we have through him? See, so often we live from a place of hopelessness. And maybe some of you in here and you're like, yeah, that's me. You feel hopeless. You feel just that dark cloud of despair blotting out the light in your life. You feel just the weight weighing you down. And maybe some of you, you, you wouldn't say that you feel hopeless. You don't even necessarily realize it. 
but you're living from a place of hopelessness. It's poisoned your thoughts, your words, and your actions. What does this hopelessness look like? It looks like your thoughts spiraling out of control, getting worse and worse and worse, darker and darker and darker, keeping you up at night. It looks like you taking the worst possible scenario that could happen and and make it a reality in your mind and in your heart. It looks like you dwelling on things that you have absolutely no control over and letting them bring anxiety and stress and fear and sadness into your life. It's letting your thoughts turn into your words and your language becomes peppered with negativity. Everything you say, everything out of your mouth has some sort of negative divide in there. Your words are are used to tear down others out of your own insecurity. You, instead of spreading the gospel message of hope that you have found in Jesus, you're spreading the message of hopelessness in your language. It's you acting out of fear and, and hoarding the resources that God has blessed you with, refusing to be generous. It's you sucking the life out of the relationships rather than breathing life into them. It's you living in sin because you don't trust God has the way that you are called to live. You don't trust that it's best for you. And so you are living in sin because you are living from a place of hopelessness. Christian, you don't need to be living as those of the world live. Christian, you are meant to live, or you are not meant to live like those of the world. The world lives without hope and without light, but you, Christian, live from an abundance of living hope because of Christ, the author of light itself. You live different from this world because you are an exile. You are set apart. This world is not your home, and it changes everything. Hopelessness and despair have absolutely no place in your mind, in your heart. No matter what happens in this life, even when things seem stressful, intense, and are difficult, and things you might not like happen, you know how it all ends. And so you don't have to stress in these times. You know that victory was won. You know that there will be a day where you will dwell with your heavenly Father in his perfect kingdom with no more pain, no more death, and no more tears for all of eternity. In a place of perfect joy and perfect peace where where sin has not marred or distorted the reality. That is your hope for your future. See, when, when Peter calls them elect exiles, sometimes people read that and they They start thinking about it and want to have discussions, debates about that word. But what I want for us is to to hear it as Peter intended for us to hear it. He calls them elect exiles not to spark some theological debate among them. He calls them that to give them comfort. That when they hear this word, calling them elect, he's saying, hey, you who are in all this difficult times and all this persecution, persecution and you're doubting things and doubting if you're going to be able to endure, doubting if it's worth it, remember that you have been set apart by God. You are secure in him. He is gripping tightly to you in his hands and nothing can take you from his hands. You are bought with the blood of Christ. 
and nothing can change that. It reminds me of the encouragement that we see in, from Paul in Romans 8, where he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Christian, take heart. Your inheritance is secure. Live as an elect exile. Live different from this world. And I want to be really clear here. This this hope that we've been talking about, it is for those who have given their lives to Jesus. It's for those who are in complete submission to King Jesus. Those who have not and who are still in the world are still in darkness. They are without hope. They are without light. And ultimately, will get exactly what they want. A life and an eternity separated from God. But what you need to know, and you need to hear me say this, as long as there is breath left in you, you have an opportunity to turn from your sin and to turn into Jesus and experience the fullness of life and the abundance of hope and have your rich inheritance secured for all eternity. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Ultimately, your sins are either going to be judged in eternity or on the cross of Christ. My hope and my prayer is that you would trust Jesus as the sacrifice for your sins. That you would be covered by his blood and that you would walk in light of this living hope that has been given to you. Just kind of wrapping this all up for us. As a pastor, I, I see so many people, honestly so many of you, who are living and acting and thinking and speaking from a place of hopelessness. I can see the, the weight that it has on you. I can, I can see the dark cloud of despair over your lives. And you need to know that that is not how God has intended for you to live. He wants you to be able to thrive within the hope that he has given to you. He, he calls you to thrive in this hope. See, when we live in hopelessness, it renders us inactive for his kingdom. You are an exile. You are not just an exile, you're an ambassador. You serve a different master. You are here as a representative of the king. You are here to, to proclaim the glory of his kingdom and proclaim the hope that was secured for you on the cross of Christ. And if you are living from a place of hopelessness, you will not be able to do that. And so if you are in here and you feel weighed down by hopelessness, and you're living from, from a place of hopelessness, my hope and my prayer is that you would remember what was done for you on the cross. That if you have never given your life to Jesus, I pray that you would walk into this newness of life. That you would be born again. That you would receive a living hope through Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, I, I hope and I pray that you would remember what's been done for you.
that you would dwell on the rich inheritance that's coming towards you, that you would remember that you don't belong to this world, you belong to the one who purchased you with his blood on the cross, that you belong to a different king. I hope and I pray that you would live from a place of hope. And I hope that as you do that, you will respond as Peter responded, in a place of worship, praising God, saying, blessed be the God of our Father. Blessed and praised be to Him.